1 Corinthians chapter 15. And we are going to take a look at only three verses today, verses 20 through 23. It's kind of ironic because last time we were together, we were talking about the R word. Um, by the way, I also wanted to um, praise God and thank God for filling in the pulpit the last three weeks, um, teaching us from Psalm 32. Um, as well as, um, where were you, Genesis, last week. Um, kind of walking us through this eternal perspective of the blessed man and also who Christ is and how God has been our eternal father. Now, I believe that everybody has gotten to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. And we are going to be talking about the resurrection. And last time we were together, that's where I was. Got sidetracked there for a second. We talked about the R word um, in 1 Thessalonians, right? And the R word was not, um, was the resurrection that, that we focused on, not the rapture, right? Not the rapture of the church, but the resurrection of the church. And by God's providence, even now, when we are celebrating Easter, today we are going to take a look at what exactly does the resurrection mean and how does our view of the resurrection differ from those that do not believe. So let us read and pray and then um, see what the Lord has to teach us from his word. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 20 to, 20, uh, to 23. It says the word of God. But now Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since by a man came death, by a man also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all would be made alive. But each in his own order, Christ the firstfruits. After that, those who are Christ at his coming. Let's pray. Father, our God, we come before you yet again because we understand our inability to do anything that is worth anything unless you supply the power and the wisdom and the grace that is necessary for it to count. We can't do anything fruitful unless you, Father, will teach us, guide us, and prune us. So, Father, we ask that as we see the reality of the resurrection of your Son, Jesus Christ, today, that you continue to supply the grace, the wisdom, the power that is necessary to understand and behold the truth that is in your word, so that we may be transformed into his likeness for the glory of your name and for the honor of the name of Jesus Christ in whose name we pray amen I was contemplating how to introduce this passage or how to begin this sermon, so to speak, our conversation together today um, because I was lost for, you know, if you know me, you know I like statistics and data and, and such and try to find it. I wanted to find what the church attendance used to be maybe 50 years ago for Easter Sunday. You know, you guys do know that Easter Sunday 
um, and Christmas Sunday, or Christmas service and Easter service, are the two most popular services in church. Most people show up on those two days, and they don't show up the rest of the, the rest of the time, or the rest of the year. Um, and I actually wanted to have some numbers to back me up, and I wanted to see the shift of what I was invited to do last, uh, well, yesterday with my family at one of my friends' house, which was um, an Easter egg hunt. And I wanted to compare and contrast to see how those two things, and I, maybe some of you have already gone to one of those or, or maybe planning to go today uh, or just came from an Easter egg hunt this morning. I wanted to see how that trend, um, how how that trend is is going up, and how the trend of Eastern Easter service church attendance is going down. I was unsuccessful to find it, but needless to say, I was wondering what exactly is the difference between the fellowship that we had yesterday at my friend's house in his backyard at the Easter egg hunt and the fellowship that we're having today at Easter service? Well, a clear and obvious answer would be one is about Jesus and the other one is about a bunny that lays eggs. I don't know how that works out. That's not even, I don't think that's even biologically um, and scientifically possible. But that's the difference, right? That's the obvious difference. One is fun and lighthearted, and it's, it's all about getting sugar and candy. It's lighthearted. It's fun. And people are laughing and enjoying their times. And it has a more of a, a fun vibe to it, so to speak. While the other one is more serious. Um, dare I even say, boring to some of us. It has a heavy meaning to it. And I mean the Easter service that we are having today. As we consider the death of a man and his resurrection, not just any man, but the Lord Jesus Christ, but we have to contemplate, we have to deal with that, we have to struggle with that. It's not just some plastic eggs laid around the yard and then you kind of have to go around and look for it. And then hopefully you have your favorite candy in it or money or whatever it is. It's fun. It's very engaging. But you have to work your mind and your hearts and you actually have to pay attention to what exactly the resurrection means. Right? Someone died on your behalf. Not only just died, but he was crucified, the worst kind of death. Not only just the worst kind of death, leading up to that death, the amount of, the amount of abuse that he took. The lashes. The crown of thorns that, were, that was placed on his head. And imagine the blood flowing from his head into his eyes. And then the blood is gruesome, it's serious, it's heavy. And then he dies. And then he's buried. That's the last thing we want to think about. Serious, it's heavy. But he didn't stay dead. You have to work through that. How do we even know that happened? That's the difference. The other difference is one has only a temporal implication, which is just in this, in this life only. Really, it's in this season only. Really, it's in this weekend only, maybe a week. The other one has eternal implications. Doesn't stop. Because now this time has passed, that Easter egg hunt season is gone, then you have to wait until next year to, to, be, to even think about it. 
Now it's on to the next one. The implications are really short-lived. The candy's gone, that's it. You throw away those plastic eggs, whatever. All the dye and everything else, you wash it off, trash, that's it. It only has this temporal implication to one, while the other one has an eternal implication. It matters, not only for today, not only for the season, but for tomorrow, and the day after that, and the day after that, and until the day you die, and even after you die, there's an implication of the resurrection. I've been asked many times by people, how do you know there's life after death? Have you considered that? How do you know that there's life after death? Most of us would answer the question like, well, the Bible tells me so, right? Like that, that nursery Christian song, Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. Oh, Jesus loves me, right? Well, the Bible tells us that. Well, I don't believe in the Bible, they would say. How do you know the Bible didn't lie to you? What is your evidence? That there's actually life after death. That there's actually proof that you who believe in Jesus Christ, who says that what, I, what the Bible tells me, I believe it. How do you know that after you die, you'll go to heaven? Or after you die, there's going to be another life? That there's life beyond this physical realm. There's life beyond what we can see and touch and feel and, and smell and hear and taste. That there's another dimension that this passage introduces to us. That this concept, so to speak. This resurrection introduces to us. Just to set the context of what we are in verse 20, in the first 15 verses, Paul shows the significance of the death and the burial and the resurrection of Jesus Christ, how central it is for the message of the gospel. It's not one of the parts of the gospel. It's not one of the parts of the things that you believe. But the death, the, res the, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ is central. It is of first importance, he says. To this message of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And he also lays out the credibility of this message, of this resurrection, by calling witnesses. As we saw in our scripture reading today, there were names named. Cleopas, that's a real person. Mary, Mary, mother of Jesus. Peter, these are real names. Like It's, it's in there intentionally. They saw, and they saw, they went and they saw the resurrected Jesus. That real people, just like you and I, saw the fact that Jesus has been raised from the dead. Not only that, Paul says, there's 500 witnesses that, that have seen him at once. In addition to all the names that, that, that were listed in our scripture reading in Luke 24. So he lays out the importance and the significance of his death, burial, resurrection. He gives us the credibility of the resurrection as if to say, this is not something that we made up like a bunny that lays eggs, which is fictional. We know it's funny. We know it's not real, but the resurrection is real. There are real people to testify to the reality of the resurrection. 
over 500 witnesses. And then that, that's in the first um, 15 verses. And then and from, uh, I'm sorry, in the first 11 verses. And then from verse 12 to 19, he deals with the idea, the question that I raised earlier. How do you know that the resurrection is real? The resurrection is refuted. Some of you, he says in verse 12, how do some among you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? There's no resurrection of the dead. You only live once. Just live, be merry, eat, drink, be happy, get married, get the most successful job you can have, make as much money as you can make, and then just you die. That's it. I mean, that's what life is about. And Paul's, Paul refutes that by saying it would be foolish to have the service if the resurrection was, wasn't real. It would be completely nonsense. And I'm using the words of the disciples themselves when they heard about this. And this is, by the way, just as an aside, the Bible doesn't hide the weakness of the disciples. When they heard that Jesus was raised, they were like, this is nonsense. I don't believe this. Like, if you're having that kind of doubt, so did the disciples until they saw it. It doesn't shy away from, from real, authentic reactions of people. It deals with the hard things that you may be dealing with. And it shines the light of the truth to those issues. Just as an aside, you get that for free. But what Paul uh, disputes or he refutes this idea of the resurrection not being real in verses 12 through 19 is, is by simply saying, if we just think about the gospel and the resurrection of Jesus just for this life only, then, man, that's might as well not believe. If the resurrection didn't happen, why are we even here? It's foolishness. If there was no resurrection, your whole belief system is no different than a bunny that lays eggs. That's where we find him saying, but, in verse 20. So in our text today, where we see Paul doing is he's arguing that this is not so. That the resurrection of Jesus Christ is the means by which we can receive the divine plan of eternal life. The plan of redemption of the human race. Not only Jesus is the means by which that redemptive plan of the human race was accomplished, but he was also the archetype the prototype, the first fruit of that. And this is what we find our, in our text. He does so by first establishing the reality of Christ being raised from the dead. Look down to verse 20. But now, Christ has been raised from the dead. I know there's a comma, but even if there was a period, that's it. That's established. We have to have that established because he has gone back. Look at verse, verses 1 through 5, where Paul says, Now I make known to you, brothers, the gospel, which I proclaim to you as good news, which I also received, in which you also stand, by which also you were saved, if you hold fast to the word which I proclaim to you as good news, unless you believed for nothing. Verse 3, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, and he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. Now look at verse 5, And that he appeared to Cephas, which is Peter, 
Then to the twelve, after that he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom who remain until now. When Paul is writing this, these people that saw the risen Christ were still alive and among them. They can actually verify this. So because he has laid this, he has given this evidence in verses 5, 6, and 7, and we're really all the way to 9, him being the last one to see the risen Christ. Since he has given this evidence, since this evidence is, is falsifiable, so to speak, you can actually see if this is right or wrong. You can, you can tell that that chair in front of me is real because I can go over there and sit down and I won't fall to the ground. You can falsify that information. You can say that you have come to Easter service this week and say, how, how do I know you were there? And then you can say, oh, the person next to me can, can testify to that. Well, how do I know that that person is not just lying for you? Okay, well, Manny can testify to that. Oh, the person behind me, can, there, was, there are, I don't know how many, how many of us are in here, maybe 40, 50 of us. There are 40 people that saw you here and they can testify. That's the evidence. That's the kind of evidence that Paul gives for the resurrection. The resurrection is not a myth. It's a real thing. So he establishes the reality of Christ being raised from the dead. And Paul's point here is that in doing so, he has revealed himself as the first fruits. And being resurrected from the dead and being raised from the dead, that's why we see back in verse 20, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. So Christ being raised from the dead is his revelation, is God's revelation of, of his son who, who, who died, who was buried, who was resurrected as the first fruit. See, I want us to kind of dive in a little bit to the language of this first fruit. What is a first fruit anyways? I mean, the only fruit we have is the ones that we go to the grocery store, to the fruit section and pick it up. We don't know at what point that fruit was born. Maybe some of you have gardens in your backyard and such. Right? So let's, let's, let's really try to, 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 to see what this language of the first fruit means in the Bible. This language of the first fruit indicates that he is the originator. He is the prototype. He is the archetype. He is the preeminent, both in order and also an attribute. When something is the first thing, the original thing, everything else after that is called a copy of the original. So Jesus Christ, the Son of God, is the original resurrection. Resurrection originated, so to speak. He is the prototype. He is the archetype. He takes preeminence, not only in order, like to say first, third, second, third, in order of numbers, but also in attribute. And the reason I bring that up is because did people, were people raised from the dead before Jesus was? I mean, Jesus himself, biblically speaking, Jesus himself raised people, right? The most famous one being Lazarus. And there was a young girl and there's a young boy that Jesus raised from the dead. So what's so special about Jesus' resurrection? Lazarus died, was buried for four days, and his carcass was smelly, 
the decay process has taken place, and Jesus comes and tells him, Lazarus, come out. And he walks out. And he actually becomes an evangelist of sorts. People were amazed by what happened to Lazarus, and Lazarus was used by God to point to Jesus being the resurrection. Though it's not in the Bible, there's, there's clear implications that Lazarus died physically again. We don't know when it happened, but Lazarus, th there is a tomb for Lazarus where you will find his remains, his body. Same thing with the young, uh, with the young girl, same thing with, with, with the young boy that Jesus raised. But Jesus' resurrection was, it takes preeminence and attribute that when Jesus ra was raised from the dead, he did not die again physically. He was raised and the empty tomb remains to this day. You and I can get on the plane, go travel however thousand miles it is from here to Palestine, go to a place where people believe it's still Again, it's, that's what is believed based on archaeological evidences and such. It, it's, we can see a tomb and there's no remains. And we can drive down from there uh, another couple of hundred, maybe a thousand miles to a land, an ancient land of Egypt, go to a tomb of kings of Egypt and actually find their carcasses, their decayed remains in there. So the resurrection of Jesus being the first fruit is not just only in, 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 in order, as in to say first, second, third, Jesus first, and then whoever's then second. It's also an attribute. The way that Jesus was resurrected from the dead, the way that Jesus raised from the dead is not the same way. Lazarus in them, for instance, was raised from the dead. He takes preeminence. And in that way, he has become, he is, actually not has become, he is the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. The other illusion that this first fruit language gives us is this sacrificial use of the word. In the Old Testament, when God and His covenant people of Israel came to, to God in their covenant, they had to have this sacrificial system whereby they have to actually give something to God for atonement for sin. And what God requires is their first fruits. It's the very first thing, the very first lamb without blemish, the first pickings of the grain. There's this language of the sacrificial use of the word. He is unblemished because the first thing that comes up has no impurity in it. It has no kind of flaw in it. So when you hear, when you see here that Jesus is the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep, it also speaks to his purity, his unblemished nature, his flawless nature of his sacrifice. That there's nothing that you and I can do today to satisfy the wrath of God because God is satisfied already. Because Jesus Christ has satisfied in his death that wrath. So you must have this firmly established in your minds and in your hearts that Jesus Christ, who has been raised from the dead, is the prototype. And I use that word because that's the, that's the closest thing that I can, I can communicate with 
with you because that language of first fruit, we do not live in an agrarian culture where agriculture is not, it's not necessarily the first, our first language. We don't know how fruits are produced and how pure the first pickings of the fruits are. And, and we don't have that, but we, we can kind of tell what a prototype is, especially those of us that have like 3D printers and such. Right? We live in a technology. You have that prototype and then you kind of go from there. That's why I'm using that word prototype. So you must have this firmly established that Jesus who has been raised from the dead is the prototype of those who die in covenant relationship with him and his father. You can look to his resurrection and really have confidence of your own resurrection. That YOLO is not your destiny. You can look at his resurrection and say, I don't only live once. So I should do everything and anything that pleases me in this moment, and then whatever else comes, I'll deal with it when I, when I get there. That's not who you are. Because you can look to Christ and to His resurrection and truly have confidence that even though the hardships are there, the struggles are there, the addictions are there, the, the, the anxiety and the depression and whatever else is there, the sickness and the, and the ailments and, and, and brokenheartedness, everything else that you can think of. And ultimately, even death would come to you. That's a guarantee. Here's a stat that I actually found. This is going to be groundbreaking. You guys ready? I looked up the rate of death since time began or since history started being recorded. You know what I found out? This is going to be groundbreaking. You guys ready? The ratio of death one-to-one. One. Every person dies. That was fascinating. I guess you guys are not as fascinated as I am with, with statistics. Each of you that, are, that is sitting in this room and every person that you know and you come to know in the future and you've known in the past, whoever it is, dies. There's a 100% death rate for each human being. But you can look to Christ and his resurrection and him being raised from the dead and say, that's not my end. This should be the lens through which you see Easter not through a lens of some make-believe thing, which doesn't even scientifically make sense. Once he establishes, um, Paul then explains why he makes this assertion. Why does he say that Jesus has been, since Jesus has been raised, he is our first fruit? Paul starts explaining this. He does so using this, Two contrasting subjects in verse 21 by means of the same agent. What do you mean by that, Manny? Explain, please. I will. How? What are these two contrasting subjects? Look down to verse 21. First subject is death, which no one wants to talk about, which Everyone scared of, afraid of. And the other one is the resurrection of the dead, or from the dead. But notice, these two things are contrasting ideas. On one side, we have death. On the other side, we have resurrection. 
But notice how those two subjects come to pass. Who actually manifests those things? Do you see? It's by a man. And by a man. Two times in that, in that verse. For since by a man, just so you know, and if you notice in your Bibles, that word came is in italics. That means it was not included in the original text. So the original text would read something like this. By a man, for since by a man death, by a man the resurrection from the dead. This is how the original would read. The word came is there for us to understand how it came about. We don't talk like that in English. The Greeks did. And it would have made sense to them. So, for since by a man came death, by a man also came the resurrection from the dead. So the death and resurrection are manifested by means of a single man. A single man is responsible as an archetype for death. We know this. All we have to do is go to Genesis chapter 3 and find Adam being cursed and well, actually, Genesis chapter 2, verse 17, when God tells him not to eat from the fruit, and if he does, he will die. And then in Genesis chapter 3, Eve eats the fruit, gives it to Adam, and they both eat, and they are then sentenced to, to death. Cursed, even. So what Paul is saying in verse 21 is a single man is responsible as an archetype for death. In the same way, a single man is also responsible for the reversal of death. So it's the same means, different results. Notice how Paul explains this in Romans chapter 5, verse 12. One of my favorite chapters in the Bible. Here's how he explains it. Therefore, just as through one man, sin entered into the world, we know this, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. This is the condition of everybody before you were saved. And this is the condition of everyone that is not saved. That's the single man responsible as an archetype for death. And notice what he says again in verse 17 of that same chapter. For if by man, by the transgression of the one who is Adam, death reigned through the one, much more who received the abundance of grace, of the gift of righteousness will reign in life through the one. Who is that one that we're talking about? Jesus Christ. And just for good measure to follow Paul's thought process in this passage, again in verse 19, for as through the one man's disobedience, this is why we can be really confident, confident that, that, that Jesus' resurrection is truly the means by which we inherit eternal life. For us, through the one man's disobedience, the many were appointed sinners. We are all sinners. People even use that as an excuse to live in sin. Even so, through the obedience of the one, which is the one that he's talking about here, it is Jesus who was raised from the dead. Through his resurrection, you will be appointed righteous. It's his obedience. Obedience even to death, even death on the cross. It is through that you can have anything that is worth anything in terms of righteousness. Having said this, in verse 22, Paul 
tells us, he presents us with two possible categories of people. Two kinds of people on earth. When you think of the resurrection, think of this. The resurrection is the archetype or which, which clearly defines the two kinds of people that are, that are in this world. There are people that are in union with Adam, and there are people that are in union in, with Christ. That's the language of an Adam. And in Christ, we see in verse 22. So either you are in Adam, or you either, uh, you're, you're in Christ. One of the two. No third way. You can't claim non-binary for this case. You're either in Adam, or you're either in Christ. I mean, you can, you'll just be just like anything else, right? You can, you can claim non-binary, but it's, it's, it's nonsense, just like everything else that claims non-binary. Again, you get that one for free too. Anyways, coming back to this, you're either in union and relationship with Adam, or you're either, uh, or you're in a union relationship with Christ. And everyone, considered individually, that's what that all means. In verse 22, everyone considered individually, that is living according to Adam, is presently, today, actively, not even passively, this is not happening to them, they are actually doing it. And in, in real, real way, in a real way, really, are separated from the life of God. They might be alive, biologically speaking. Their organs is working. Their lungs still inhale and exhale oxygen, and their, the heart is beating, and their mind even may be working fine. They might even be doctors and engineers and psychologists and programmers and whatever, students, whatever, your mind is working, it's alert and everything else. Your heart is beating, your, your kidneys are clearing your blood and your liver is doing whatever livers do, I have no idea. But you, all of that is working, your legs are functioning fine. Maybe you're walking with a limb like me, whatever. You might be alive, but you're actually dead. That's not the life that God, you do not have the life of God. The Zoe, this divine life, you are completely, really, presently, and actively separated from that life of God if you are an Adam. On the contrary, Paul presents in verse 22, so also in Christ, if you're in union with Christ, if you're living with a, in a relationship with Christ, you... This is, again, the language is clear. It says all, everyone considered individually. Not just generically. It's like I see a bunch of people in here, so I say all y'all are, are not paying attention. I'm like, no, but there's three people in here that are paying attention. Or all of y'all are paying attention, actually. Let me be more positive about it. But there are like five people that are asleep as we, as we speak. Like, how can you say all? Oh, yeah, technically, I just mean generally speaking. But that's not what this all means. This means every single person counted one by one, individually, if you have union with Christ, if you are in Christ, you, notice the language, it doesn't say, in Adam, all die, but in Christ, all will be made alive. You notice that? There's a passive verb that he uses. So if you are in Christ, if you're living according to Christ, presently, actively, and really, 
in a real way. Not just in the way that says, uh, you know, I'm a Christian. I grew up in a Christian household. I come to church every Sunday, Bible study on Friday. I even sing the songs when the worship team comes up. I actually have my voice out. You know, God knows my heart. You know, I'm, I mean to do well. Not in that way. In a real Christ-like way. If you're living that way. Those things are great, by the way. If you are, that's fine. But more than that. If that's you, everyone that is in that category is caused to have life a second time. That's what Paul says. And I wanted to emphasize the passive verb for a reason because it's not something that you gain by your works. This new life, this resurrection life of which Christ is the first fruit is not something that you work it out. Sin is. You don't even have to try. You just wake up and you sin. Honestly, if we're honest, you wake up, thought comes to your mind, whatever that thought is, sinful thought, obviously. You're, you get tempted, you're like, all right, I guess. You don't have to work so hard, but you do it anyways. It comes naturally to you to sin. It's something that you actively engage in. And you don't actively engage in saving yourself. There's no active way of saving yourself. You can't save yourself. There's no kind of works that you can give to God that can save you. But you can be saved. And you are saved if you are in Christ. But that's a gift. Turn with me to Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 9, and, and, and let, let's, let's walk through this. You know, you know this. This is an illustration of what that, those two categories are. This gives us such a great illustration and paints a picture for us. And especially since it uses the word you. Anytime it says you, it's talking about you. Many times it says we, it's talking about us. And you were dead in your transgressions and sins, in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the rule of the power of the air, the spirit that is now working in the sense of disobedience, among whom we all also formerly conducted ourselves. How? In the lust of our flesh, doing the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. But God, being rich in mercy, because of His great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. Do you hear that language of Christ being the first fruit of the resurrection? He was dead and he's made alive. He had been raised from the dead and through him, God makes us alive with Christ. We don't make ourselves alive with Christ. It's not because you walk down an aisle. It's not because somebody prayed a prayer with you and for you that you just made yourself alive. It's because God gave you life. Here's, can, let's continue. And raised us up with Him and seated us with Him in the heavenly places, in Christ Jesus. Again, that language of in Christ, in union with Christ, in relationship with Christ. So that in the ages to come, He might show the surpassing riches of His grace in kindness to us, towards us, in Christ Jesus. How do you do this? How do you get this? Do I wake up? Do I, do I just do something? What do I need to do? You just need to receive it. Look at verse 8. For by grace you have been saved through faith. Grace is unmerited favor. It's favor that you didn't deserve at all. You actually deserve to die. We all did. And what we had, whatever we deserved, we deserved it. Like it was coming to us. Death and, and punishment, like we've done 
and we continue to do really things that would deserve punishment. But instead, what we got was life. That's grace. Undeserved, unmerited favor. How do you receive that grace? By faith, through faith. What about that faith? Where does that come from? Do I have more faith inherently when I was born and I, I just have like a 75% more faith DNA than the next person who does not believe? No, this is what it says. For by grace you have been saved through faith and this not of yourselves. It is a gift from God. It is the gift of God. Not of works so that no one may boast. So you are made alive. You are not making yourself alive. You're not buying your way into eternity. And Christ being raised from the dead as the prototype of that. You can see and look to his resurrection. You can read the account of his resurrection. All four gospel accounts actually list an account of his resurrection, looking at it from different perspectives, different angles, so to speak. Each of them have an account of his resurrection. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. And then in the book of Acts, the apostles tell the account of his resurrection and how that resurrection power is now displayed by the way that the church lives and believers live. You can look at that and say, this is not the end for me. This life is not all there is. There is life that comes after this one. Whereby, if I'm an Adam, I don't get to live it. But if I'm in Christ, I look forward with joy and gladness. And Christ's resurrection is the first fruit the prototype, the archetype of this reality. But this only gets applied to whom? Look at verse 23. Each in his own order. Christ is the first fruit. After that, all mankind. That's not what it says. And... Christ, the first fruits, after that, all people that believe in God, whichever God is. It's not what it says. Christ is the first fruit, after that, those who are Christ's. That distinct, personal, real, authentic, active relationship with Christ, that union with Christ, is how we can look at the first fruit of the resurrection and say, I also will be living a resurrected life. You know, I say this one thing and I'll finish. I'm, I have a bunch of group chats. I used to have a group chat for a work that I did and um, like a work group chat, and um, every time Easter came around, and even um, Christmas came about, you know, you get those group chats. It's like, hey, Happy New Year, Happy Fourth of July, Happy Mother's Day, Happy Father's Day, you know, Happy Easter. And you might not think about it. You no, know, I was always taken back by a Happy Easter text in a group chat. 
coming from a Muslim person. And it happened, like, literally, two different group chats. One was a soccer group chat. The other one was a work group chat. And it's, it's like, oh, happy Easter, guys. Like, what? Do you understand what that means, what the significance of Easter is? That was a great gospel opportunity, which I coward in, in some case. And, and it gave me an opportunity to actually talk to people about it. Or the reverse. Like a confessing Christian actually wishing a Muslim like Id al-Fatir, which is when, when they um, have their holy holiday for what they're fasting right now, that's happening for the last month or whatever. It's like, that's significantly different. There's a clear distinction between that. And the Bible makes it clear. Only those that are in Christ will be raised from the dead and live a resurrected life. A second time. And this exclusivity of the gospel is why Christians are probably the most hated religions on, on earth. Not probably. I would even put money on it if betting wasn't a sin. We're, we're persecuted at a higher rate than any other religion because we do not compromise, at least those of us that are truly Christ's. There's a clear distinction between you who are in Christ and those who are in Adam. We saw this. Those are the ones that will be raised from the dead at His coming. And this is why we take time out of our year, at least once a year, and look back and celebrate the resurrection of Christ. This is why we are having this Easter Sunday service. How great it is to be, to be His, to, be, to know you will be raised from the dead because you are Christ. And how sad it is to be in Adam and perish. So if you're hearing this, and you have not come to the saving faith in Christ, today is the day of salvation. And if you are hearing this and you are Christ, rejoice. For Christ being resurrected is your prototype, your archetype, your first fruit of your own resurrection. Pray with me. Father, so thankful for the time that you've given us together, looking at your word, learning from your word. We ask that your spirit would apply his power to each of our hearts, each of our minds, by way of conviction of truth, conviction of sin, and drawing our hearts more and more to the Christ, to the Lord, to the Savior, who defeated death has been resurrected from the dead and in doing so has given us hope that we also will be raised from the dead that this life is not all that we have we don't bank and have confidence on the things of this world on the things of this life although we are thankful for where you have placed us this position you put us in, in time, in the space, in the country, and the age that we live in. Lord, this is not all for us. You have something that is significantly 
greater and better. Much more enjoyable than the most fun thing that we can do in this life. Lord, thank you for giving it to us by the by means of the resurrection of your Son, Jesus Christ. So that we may start enjoying and living that life as we are being conformed into His image even before you call us home and He returns to bring us home. So Father, we ask your Spirit would apply everything that you've taught us today to our hearts and our minds for your glory and the honor of your Son, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. I ask you now again to rise one last time as the worship team comes or no? Yes? No? Do we have